Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Gosh, you know, so last week, Bill, I was um, doing the summary for our podcast and I typed out weekly podcast in between number 50. And it just seems almost impossible and yet obviously so possible that here we are a year later. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, about where where we are and what we're going to be doing going forward. Um, yeah. This coming Sunday, we will have one of the organizers, one of the one of the Black Lives Matter movements in Houston, will be a featured speaker, and I thank Wayne Herbert, uh, one of the members of our steering committee, for doing the heavy lifting to get Brandon to speak to us. I had a conversation with him yesterday. Really seems like a really nice, mm-hmm. lighthearted, funny, wonderful, and dead serious guy about the need for racial justice in mm-hmm. uh, the where we are. And uh, so that's going to be next Sunday. You'll be gone the following Sunday to attend your niece's graduation. Congratulations yes, to her. Yes, sir. And um, Wayne Herbert, who is uh, going to allow me to label him as um, uh, our our current member atheist. (laughs) A resident atheist. Wayne and I have known each other for 18 years. And um, we've shared a lot of important stuff together. And Wayne is not a fan fan of organized religion and yet he told me yesterday when we were talking about our conversation in two weeks he said you know just following the teachings that I've heard from ordinary life has made me a calmer happier less judgmental less angry person and uh, Mm -hmm. it makes a sensible way to live and uh, so we're going to have a conversation about how did this man who is an avowed atheist come to be a front row attendee of Ordinary Life, a very active member in it. And um, he wants to ask me how did a good old racist Southern Baptist boy get to be in the liberal <laughs> crazy position he's in at St. Paul's. And I'll be, so yeah. we're going to talk about that. And then, the- you know, there's, um, there's this whole movement around um, Jews for Jesus. I don't know that much about it. It's a little bit paradoxical because Jesus was Jewish, but maybe there's also a movement called Atheists for Jesus. <laughs> um, yeah, there is, I think. I mean, I don't know about yeah, that being yeah. formally true. Um, yeah. And then uh, the next Sunday, you and I are going to kind of review the last year. Yeah. Uh, we can start that process a little bit today, just kind of leading ourselves up to this. It sort of feels monumental and yet totally, totally not at the same time. Well, you know, where our relationship as far as ordinary life began is that you got actively involved in the class. We needed to do some organizing, have some structure and integrity about financial stuff and transparency and all that stuff. And you volunteered 
step in, as did Richard Wingfield and a number of other people mm -hmm. on the steering committee. And um, I realized that I really needed help in teaching and asked you if you would be willing to step in and teach at least once a month, and then maybe we could co-teach some. And we were, we were clipping along doing that pretty well. Uh, and then this COVID-19 thing hit and, um, you know, I'm going to have to go back, Holly, and look at my, my diary and my journal for, for during that time. I am not exactly sure how it fell into what we have become. I just knew immediately I could not teach that class in that empty room by myself. And thank God. Mm -hmm you said that you would be willing to do it for two or three weeks. <laughs> Famous last words. Well, that's what we thought, right? Yeah. I mean, really, yeah. we thought, yeah. well, surely this is not going to last more than six weeks. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's been more like, what, 15 months now? Yeah. I mean, it's been since about March 13th of 2020. And, you know, so much has happened in the last year or 15 months. Um, well, I'll say a little thing before we amble our way into that. Uh, Phil, my father said, it's kind of like you're getting two PhDs. <laughs> you have this, you know, six or so hours a week, one-on-one -on -one with this mentor and you, we get to do these dialogues and really think through things in an intentional way. Um, so I don't underestimate that at all. You know, there's there's a real, I think back over these last 15 months um, and yeah, we've committed a lot of time to keeping energy going and, and alive, but at the same time, it's put a frame around how I have been able to process the events of the last 15 months. Um, I hope that we've also helped other people that we would normally see Sunday to Sunday process the events of the last 15 months. Um, I don't think it's always been comfortable. I think a lot of really difficult things have happened that as spiritual teachers, if you will, mm -hmm. we're obliged to address, mm -hmm. you know? So again, I will try to go back and look at this before we, we get back together the last Sunday in this month, but uh, there was a beautiful dovetailing uh, mm -hmm. We've had two, what I think, beautiful things that just merged together. One around Ilya Delio, whom we both love. Yes. And the other around yeah. Michael Morewood. And when mm -hmm. Michael and Maria Morewood came to Houston, you know, we, um, I, I don't remember how and why it was that we didn't get the whole steering committee together, but I remember that you and Josh and uh, Michael and Maria and Sherry and I went out to dinner at that wonderful restaurant that I love that's now out of business. And yeah. um, it was not too long after that, that COVID hit. Michael was scheduled to come back to the States. Mm -hmm. COVID hit, he could not travel. So we did mm -hmm. a webinar with him. But anyway, all around that, that time, uh, you know, you brought all this stuff about Brian Swim and all that work that you're doing on your PhD to enrich the content of the class just immeasurably. And, and mm -hmm. it's just as clear as the sun is in the sky 
that we're going to have to learn to do theology in an evolutionary manner. And yeah. that's what I see us doing going forward. Um, mm -hmm. And I want to talk, talk some about that too. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, so when I think about cosmology and I've said this in different ways, a cosmology is two different things. It's the science of the study of the origins of the universe and the developmental arc of the universe, but it's also the stories we tell about it, you know, and, and the stories we tell about it um, help near, help us understand the science, honestly, you know, um, before we had the scientific awareness to be able to understand around earth, we had stories that helped us get there, mm -hmm. right? Um, repetition and patterns or the ways the stars moved in the sky helped us, our stories about how we fit helped us to develop our understanding. Mm -hmm. And I'm so interested in that sort of emergence, right? Of the story and the science. And then also the theologies, how do we create belief systems around these stories and this science? And not to get too attached to anyone, you know, we can't get overly attached to theology as the way things are. We can't get overly attached to um, science as the way things are. And we cannot get overly attached to humans as the end all be all of the way things are. Right. And I see right now this time of like this clashing, all of these things are clashing. Humans are having to deal with how we have not only disrupted, I mean, we're naming potentially, and I think this is a friend of mine told me that this was like up for debate right now, an entire geologic era, the Anthropocene, which means humans have had enough impact on the environment to name a geologic era after themselves. So that's a clash. We've got this marvelous scientific understanding that helps us do things like put a rover on Mars. But where does that, where does that become too much? Do I really want to live on Mars? Heck no. No, mm -hmm. I don't want to live in a space suit in a, you know, without sun, without, you know, for, for the foreseeable future. But we've done enough damage to this place, our home, to make that a possibility of, well, should we consider plan B? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And then we've got like the clashing of our of our of theology and science. Um, and there's an invitation, I think, to just sort of breathe into that and go, you know, these things are not so disparate. So um, one of the things that I got from the most recent book of Daramut Amirakus I've read is this mm -hmm. business about um, and, and the word that I came up with, you gave me some other, unfortunately, I don't remember it, but it was a word I didn't, it was not in my vocabulary. Uh, what, what I've said is that one of the things we have to do is we have to do theology and, and our understanding of spiritual truths and living in a post-colonial way. And when you said that about Mars, it just made me think the way the United States is behaving, it's like we believe we own Mars. Yes. We also believe we own the moon. By and the way. moon. <laughs> because we went there. I, I knew, a, yeah, put a flag on it, put our footstep on it. Golf you know, on the, it. And, and that's just like kind of a crazy way of thinking to me. I had, I knew a guy who had a shirt with, um, you know, a, a, an image, let's say, of Neil Armstrong putting the U.S. flag on the moon. And it said, we got here first. 
And it, it's so, you know, our identity being encapsulated by competition of that sort. Mm-hmm. This is like saying who owns the air to me, mm-hmm. you know, and like we don't own the air um, any more than we own gravity or any more than we own the moon, right? I, I just, we seem so almost fearful that our position, and when I say our, I mean human position in the grand cosmological evolution of things is meaningless. Like, I think we're terrified of that. Mm. Are we just a blip on the screen? And so we're in reaction to that fear that we don't mean anything. We're making meaning for ourselves. We're making our mark upon something so that we will be remembered. Think of all the ways that humans try to be remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, some are useful and some are not, but um, I have to say that I have grown a little bit more despair over the role of the human in evolution. And I think we have a real choice to make. We're at like a threshold right mm-hmm. now. Um, it um, has fallen my responsibility to give the sermon at St. Paul's on the 30th, I think, of this mm. month. And so we will be back inside as a St. Paul's worship will be back inside the sanctuary with all the rules and regulations about that. And as you know, we are what's called a lectionary church. So we the, mm-hmm. Whoever has the responsibility for preaching that Sunday is pretty much expected to base the homily on one of the texts that are appointed for that particular Sunday. And it's my luck of the draw to get the text that mm. includes John 3.16. And um, oh, really? yeah. I, right now I'm thinking about even even having a placard made because it, that just says John three sixteen on it that I can hold Football up games. at ball games <laughs> and, 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 and yeah. to make the, the distinction between what it means to be uh, a community that focuses on beliefs rather than behaving. And mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know who you listen to about the, the state of our nation right now, but one of the men that I respect and pay attention to is John Meacham. John Meacham Mm -hmm. is a man who's won a Pulitzer Prize for his writings on presidential history. And he's he's got a wonderful voice and he's Mm -hmm. a wonderful speaker in terms of being able to take things very complicated over a long arc of history and put them down where people can understand them. He's written a book and there is a documentary by the same title called The Soul of the Nation. Mm-hmm. And I saw him interviewed on TV just last week and the interviewer asked John Meacham, have we ever as a nation been in this perilous place that we are before? And Meacham said one other time, and that was right before the Civil War. Yeah. And so when you said that you had this kind of sense of despairing about the country, uh, we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot in so many, many ways. Um, voting restrictions, 
um, yeah. gun rights or whatever you want to call them. It's just crazy. We're, it, we're, it's almost like as a country, we're having a partial psychosis. For sure. You know, Texas um, legislature just introduced another bill around being one of the states that excludes critical race theory from any curriculum or public dialogue. And, you know, it, it's, it's just, what is it that the sort of institution of white supremacy is trying to control? It's this clinging. Yeah. So some people who are listening to this might not know what critical race theory means. So give us a definition. Yeah. Well, critical race theory emerged really um, in the sort of academic world in, in the 90s um, with some early thinkers around that um, and looked at the issues of identity, culture, ethnicity, and race in terms of experience in a society. And, um, and one of the things that you know, I remember when I was in grad school, the first time getting my degree in education, there were very few writers writing around, let's say, intersectional. Um, so we have this theory of development, but we didn't have theories of development from uh, an immigrant perspective, from an African-American perspective, from a Hispanic American perspective, and so on and so forth. And that was really growing in the late 90s and early 2000s, where these different voices in the room, how do we consider development? around um, in these traditional ways. You know, we have like Eric Erickson and Piaget who really wrote from a, they've studied mm -hmm. white boys. Mm -hmm. That's who they studied. And so all of our acceptable theories of development are based on this one population. And um, I, I would say, you know, it's funny because I, let me back, go backwards a little bit. Critical race theory was probably planted in the 60s and 70s when people were writing about liberation theologies, when people were writing about civil rights, et cetera. But it became an area of study in the um, late 90s and 2000s. One area that's emerging is um, critical whiteness studies. In other words, um, for so long in our culture, whiteness has been seen as kind of not having a culture. White people don't have a culture, okay? And, 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 and white isn't a race. It's an identity or it's a way of being or a way of believing. So there's been a lot of looking into how has white identity shaped this culture, right? This country. And in some ways, um, sometimes, you know, I think about Trevor Noah, right? I, I love him because he was not born here, but he was raised in an environment, you know, his book, mm -hmm. Born a Crime, where at his birth, interracial uh, relationships were still illegal. And so therefore offspring from those interracial relationships were illegal. And he has such a really um, incisive, sharp way of seeing mm -hmm. the United States in part because he grew up in something so profound, but in part because he's also from the outside looking in, mm -hmm. you know, to this culture and saying, ha, can't you see this? So so I hope I explained a little bit about critical race theory. It's really looking at how does our um, ethnicity, our race, and our um, cultural values shape the society mm -hmm. we're living in. Yeah. One of the things that I want to speak to in the sermon that I give, which is not written yet, but I'm working on it, is that um, mm -hmm. the desire to return to normal is something mm -hmm. we must avoid. Yes. Um, 
I, I, I feel this sense of, I mean, as you know, and I've mentioned this enough times, my counterphobic sickness is this hyper aware of those, like, you know, the ways that we get lulled into complacency. And I, I, I really think that that's a way that, that is probably fairly intentional around, um, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, I'm not, but there are ways that our media systems, that our, um, our purchasing systems, our companies that sort of rule our social interactions, want us to believe that we're returning to normal. There's no real critical dialogue around, well, what's different now than last March? What's different, you know, how do we need to move forward? And that sense of complacency worries me, you know? We can just sort of jump right back into normal. There is no going back. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, from the sort of like <laughs> perspective of, um, of a counterphobic sex, like I think one of the things that we have to be able to learn from that is, and I said this to you kind of recently, what are real fears and what are mm -hmm. imagined fears? What are real concerns and what are imagined concerns? And there are some real deep concerns out there that we need to attend to less. You know, they, when you mentioned the um, stories that us. we listen to and live out, I thought immediately of Joanna Macy's schema of stories about mm -hmm. business as usual, the great unraveling and the great turning. And um, business as usual is killing us. Business as usual has mm -hmm. gotten us George Floyd's murder. And there's a, there is a, a turning hopefully, in the verdict that that uh, came down about that, that murder. But we've got to keep moving in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this introduces some of the despair, I feel, that within days, hours, minutes of that verdict, more unarmed Black folks were killed or, uh, or harmed. And I, you know, I, I really don't know why we can't learn from these moments. Like these should be stop in our tracks moments. Oh my gosh, what are we doing wrong that we need to so I looked at, I looked up that. yesterday how many gun deaths there are in America on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And the statistics that I could find are for um, 2020. You get more mm -hmm. more valid statistics the further back you go, but for 2020, it's something like 104 to 110 deaths a day, and um, not all of those are murders. Some of those are suicides. Um, some of those are, you know, gang-related, drug-related kind of internecine wars that take place. But we just have to. We're, we're captivated by some sense of violence. We use it to entertain ourselves. Many of the video games are just brutally violent. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. I don't play them, but. <laughs> you don't play Mortal Kombat in, in your free time? No. no. Okay. Well, that's good to know. You have some integrity around that. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I mean, that's, these are our great addictions are, are, I think, a, addicted to violence and addicted to individualism. And I think our addiction to individualism feeds our, our, our addiction to violence. In other words, um, I'm so committed to my individualism that I think I need an arsenal of weapons to protect myself and my rights. That, you know, so, so therefore we have Texas passing in the process of trying to pass a constitutional carry law. You know, that's about individualism. That's not about collective um, protection. That's about wanting to protect, to protect my property, my well-being, my safety. And then if I go out into public, I get to decide who's a threat to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, that, so I think these two are so interrelated, um, our addiction to violence and our addiction to individualism. So I'm, I'm real clear. I've said this to you and I will say it to business owners. If this crazy law passes the Texas Senate and gets signed into law that ordinary citizens can openly carry weapons without a license and without training, I'm not going to, I'm not going to walk. If I walk into a business where I see that, I'm going to turn around and walk out. Heck yeah. Yeah. I mean, there will be private businesses that say, you know, that have uh, just like private businesses right now are saying masks are required to enter. Right. Um, There will be private businesses that say no firearms are permitted on these premises, but it's, um, but what's who, who wins in that situation? Can someone claim, well, my state gives me the right to do so, so I can violate your private rule. Mm. You know, I, I really don't know. Um, I would hate to be so um, early, kind of last fall, um, one of my nieces was working in retail and she was, they had a rotating job of being tasked with standing at the door and making sure that clients were entering wearing masks. She, you know, she's a teenager. That's an impossible situation to put a teenager in when you've got a headstrong older uh, Mm -hmm. white woman um, saying, I don't have to wear a mask. That's an infringement on my, how is a 17 year old going to fight back on that or push back? Right. There's just I, I couldn't have done that when I was 17. And, 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 and I feel like that's part of it. You know, you, you have people at the Astros stadium or um, at Walmart or in grocery stores holding signs like you must have a mask to enter, but there's no actual um, confrontation that happens between the person who's not wearing a mask and the person who's holding the sign. There's a powerlessness there. And so one can assert their power simply by not wearing a mask. Um, one mm-hmm. can assert their power simply by walking into the store with a gun. Because mm-hmm. if you push back on that, that's your life and mm-hmm. in, in someone else's hands. Well, it's, it's, it's incumbent upon those of us who um, want to embrace the principle that was put forward at the at the turn, great turning called the first axial age, that we must learn to, to treat others as we would like to be treated. Mm-hmm. And that's a non-sectarian stance that we need to embrace. And as Richard Dwar says, that the way we go forward is practicing the better. Mm-hmm. 
and it's there's to be a place yeah. for that yeah our um you know when you hold a baby and and y'all just had this experience of meeting a new baby um recently if we have any kind of let's say um normal development and and most people fall into some range of normal immediately what happens is this sort of tenderness arises between mm -hmm. a baby and who's holding the baby um eye contact is made the pupils dilate um there might be cooing sounds there might be a little grin from the baby um that's empathy we we are, I believe, hardwired for empathy. And yet so many of the experiences we go through make us lean away from empathy. We get hurt. Even sometimes by our caregivers, we get hurt. And this trust is eroded over time, this ability to empathize. And I wonder how we can sort of keep kids, keep ourselves engaged with growing this muscle. I mean, we work out, we do Pilates, we ride bikes, we go on walks, but empathy is a muscle that needs to be mm -hmm. worked as well. Bell Hook says that about love. Love, we are, we are probably hardwired for it. We definitely are, but it's a muscle that we have to grow. It's not something that just gets taken for granted. Mm -hmm. Well, you're the evolution expert. Isn't it true that, that we were able to get where we are today because we have the capacity for compassion and cooperation? Absolutely. You know, Darwin, um, Darwin actually never used the term survival of the fittest. Darwin did say and use the term survival of the fit, right? Um, it, it, it Fittest has a competitive edge to it. Fit is just like, more definitional, who is fit, what does fit mean, et cetera. But when you get into fit, fit or fittest, you have a hierarchy, right? But one of the things that, um, you know, Darwin sat on his theories for a long time, because quite like Einstein, these two, you know, these two happened within decades of each other too, is he knew that the information that he had been observing for years was gonna change the world. Mm -hmm. We weren't special dropped here by God in a garden. We evolved from every other thing like every other thing. Right. And, and the one thing that Darwin could not develop a theory about um, was, was compassion. And how, except for to say that compassion is also a life force. When a mother bear protects her young, that is compassion in the natural world. That's, you know, that's, that's something in the natural world. Well, then we can get conscious about compassion. We can actually grow it and develop it. You know, it's clear from what the climatologists are saying. It's clear from what the sociologists are saying. It's clear from a variety of disciplines that if we don't learn to cooperate and live together better, we don't have a future. No, there's. I read this quote, um, gosh, I can't remember where it was from, but it was basically something like if we societies that cannot dream a future, imagine a future, don't have one. 
And if we keep continuing this business as usual, that's not us being creative about a future. And the way that, you know, Joanna Macy sort of put people in those three categories, they all exist at once. There's the business as usual mm -hmm. people, there's the, you know, so how these are in conflict with one another, these categories. And I, um, yeah, my youngest son said to me the other day, uh, he was watching something for school and he said, mommy, humans do really terrible things, <laughs> you know, and I'm trying to help create a category of being for my own kids. Where do you want to fall? Do you want to contribute? to the less horrible things? Do you want to go along with? Or, you know, or do you want to radically imagine something totally different? Yeah, and and uh, <clears throat> I want to say to your son, humans also do some outstandingly one, wonderful things. They, oh, you yeah. know, in terms of not just simply fighting for justice, but in a whole host of other ways. So, mm -hmm. um, we're going to reflect together in a couple of weeks on the, this past year. And uh, I, I was going to ask you, if people don't know this, have you saved all of John Watson's photographs? I have. I think we should put like a mosaic of all of those up. I really do. And, and then we'll get to see when did Holly and Bill wear the same thing over the <laughs> Can you do that? Can you put that slide together? Yeah, I'll try. I think that'd be fantastic. Um, yeah. So we'll create yeah. we'll create a slideshow for that Sunday, and I don't know what we'll call that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there's so there's one final thing I want to turn our attention to before we um, power down, uh, but it goes back to like, where are we right now? Mm -hmm. This great turning. How do we move forward? Going back to business as usual is a form of denial. Yeah, because it says I'm not willing to look at what is moving forward with radical imagination is a is scary mm -hmm. and unknown. But I loved this. There's a, a, a handle that I follow on Instagram called Black Liturgies. It, it's beautiful, and and it's definitely written for to to try and just create ethos and empathy around what is happening specifically for Black folks in our country right now. Mm -hmm. But this says, if you wait to be unafraid, you will die waiting. The terrors of this world do not sleep. Liberation is for those who tremble. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. So we do it anyway, right? Yeah. We do it anyway. Yeah. yeah. So the tentative title of the sermon I'm going to give is Moving Forward by Standing Firm. And mm -hmm. where we stand is in the arena of compassion and justice. Yeah, we have to. Yep. All righty. I will not see you. I mean, you're not going to be there Sunday or in two weeks. Yeah. You'll be gone, but in three weeks. But we'll keep doing a podcast next week, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we'll do We're that. We're going to keep okay. doing podcasts. And um I don't know that this is on the Ordinary Life website yet, 
it did go out in the summary this past week, um, but we are reopening for in-person gatherings on June the 6th. And mm -hmm. um, one of us will make sure that something about that's on the website. Yes, it, and I think it just is once we have these very clear, this is how it's gonna work. It'll happen a couple, about two weeks in advance. I okay, think. yeah. So, there'll be time, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> Yes. Bye -bye. Okay, thanks, Bill. Bye.